Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now please enjoy the program. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next... rare safety move by a major... 17 years the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. This Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. Happy Monday to you. And we're going to go right as we have for most of the last 129 days, giving you an update on what's going on in Israel. Israel's military and security forces rescued two Hamas-held hostages in the Egyptian border town of Rafah early this morning in a daring midnight raid and a shootout with terrorist guards. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has welcomed two male hostages home. Both are dual Israeli and Argentinian citizens from Kibbutz Ityak, and both are listed in good condition. Netanyahu is facing strong White House and world criticism for the military operation in Rafah, insists only military pressure will secure the hostages' release. To give you an expanded report, we turn once again to our friends at CBN News. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu welcomed the dual Israeli-Argentinian citizens home and congratulated the rescue team. I salute our brave soldiers for their bold action, which brought about their release. Only continued military pressure until a complete victory will bring about the release of all of our hostages. IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari said the operation relied on high-value intelligence and their forces waited for the right moment. This is an operation we've been preparing for for some time. The necessary preparations have been made, and we were waiting for the conditions that will allow it to be put into operation. Within hours, the two rescued hostages were back with their families. Luckily for us as a family, they were saved tonight. But I must say that the job is not done. We are happy today, but it's not a, it, we, are, we didn't win. 
It's just another step towards bringing all the other 134 hostages back home. The rescue inside Rafah highlights the high-stakes confrontation over the city. Israel wants to pursue thousands of Hamas terrorists in Rafah. But the White House says the operation shouldn't go forward without a plan to protect the one million civilians sheltering there. Netanyahu told ABC News Israel has a plan. We're not cavalier about this. This is part of our war effort to get civilians out of harm's way. It's part of Hamas's effort to keep them in harm's way. But we've so far succeeded and we're going to succeed again. Those who say that under no circumstances should we enter Rafah are basically saying lose the war. Keep Hamas there. On Saturday, the IDF revealed a Hamas tunnel complex directly under UNRWA's main headquarters in the Gaza Strip. It found evidence UNRWA supplied the tunnel with electricity, as well as large quantities of weapons inside the UNRWA building, including rifles, ammunition, grenades, and explosives. The IDF also found documents showing Hamas terrorists used UNRWA offices. After the discovery, Israel's UN Ambassador Gilan tweeted on X, every day we find more proof that in Gaza, the UN equals Hamas and vice versa. Israel's Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said the IDF has entered the most sensitive Hamas locations and they're using Hamas's own intelligence against them. He says the more they advance, the closer Israel is getting to a deal to free the hostages. Chris Mitchell, CBN News, Jerusalem. And adding to the fomenting situation in the Middle East, Iran has marked its 45th anniversary of the 1979 Islamic Revolution. And amid the celebrities or the celebrations taking place, there were missiles and burning American flags as thousands marched in Tehran. Here's more from ABC News. Iranians celebrating the 45th anniversary of the 1979 Islamic Revolution that installed Ayatollah Khomeini as Iran's supreme leader. Hundreds of thousands gathering in Tehran. Young and old alike, including 14-year-old Ali Reza. Why are you here today? Because we want to support, support our countries. Iranist military hardware on full display, a staggering show of force. Iran is not afraid to use these, this man tells me. The celebratory mood at the ceremony punctuated with the occasional burning of American and Israeli flags and chants of death to Israel and death to America. This against the backdrop of escalating tensions throughout the Middle East. We met 35-year-old Nilu Fad. About Iran getting involved in conflict in Gaza, getting involved in a war maybe with the U.S., that's something Iranians no, no, are concerned about? No, no, we are not concerned about the war. And if uh, a war uh, happened, we are never afraid. Amir Ali Hajizadeh, who commands Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Air Force with a measured warning, telling me the Americans know that they should not mess with Iran, and we are not warmongers. We do not seek war either. Speaking at Sunday's ceremony, Iran's President Ibrahim Raisi calling for Israel to be expelled from the UN for their military campaign on Gaza. Earlier this weekend, miles away from the anniversary ceremony, we spoke with average Iranians whose primary concerns are about their pocketbooks, the country's high unemployment and crippling inflation. Shop owner Salman telling me the prices go up every day. A student named Maide says she's getting crushed under the weight of an economy in distress. 
Mehdi, another shop owner, telling me we are making just enough not to die. Hmm. I am so thankful that we bring you the rest of the story. If I can borrow from that radio legend, Paul Harvey, this is why we talk to people like Dr. Hamou Shariat, who is the founder and the head of Iran Alive Ministries. Through his ministry, the gospel is beamed into Iran 24-7. And the citizens there have the opportunity to engage and talk back. And when I've asked Hermuz about his take on what Iranians really feel about what's going on in Israel, as an example, there's a huge faction of the population in omission in this ABC News story, which is why I played it for you so that you can understand the mandate to be a Berean, a huge swath of Iranians who support Israel. But of course, Iran, remember, the leadership of Iran is backdoor funding and plotting this assault against Israel. They're coming through Gaza. They're absolutely part of the training grounds for Hezbollah in Lebanon. And this is a proxy war for Israel with Iran. That's the leadership. That's the Ayatollahs. That is not the average Iranian. And that's why this program exists, to bring you that different perspective, that biblical perspective, when even a former Miss Iran supports Israel you know there's more than what ABC News just reported. By the way, we are a listener-supported program. If you want to keep in the market with Janet Parshall on the air, then please call and give a gift of any amount, 877-JANET-58, 877-JANET-58, or in the market with JanetParshall.org. God's work in your life has prepared you with a unique message to share and a problem to solve. That truth is why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. God uses you to point to His goodness and to give you meaning and purpose. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58, that's 877-JANET-58, or go to InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. We've been trying to get you to pay attention to what's going on through the World Health Organization and their unmitigated desire to really grab national sovereignty. Sadly, we have some in our own government who are only too willing to acquiesce. So by playing tap dancing around languages like the word treaty, they somehow think that their this unelected body has the right to determine for the rest of the globe exactly how they would handle any future pandemics, including but not limited to defining what constitutes a pandemic in and of itself. Well, there was a press conference that was held recently that I can't wait to tell you about. And in attendance was none other than Reggie Littlejohn, whom we have had the privilege and the pleasure of talking with many times over the last years. She is, of course, president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers. She works globally to stop gender side, the specific killing of preborn babies predicated on their gender, and also forced abortions, particularly in communist regimes. But in addition to that, she wears two other hats. She's president of the Anti-Globalist Alliance, as well as the co-founder of the Sovereignty Coalition. And I have some information on my website for you to learn more about that. But this press conference took place on February 5th. Reggie, thank you so much, not only for the gift of your time, I can't repay you, but for the steadfast work you're doing. You had your hands full in two with Women's Rights Without Frontiers, but you've become passionate about this deadly alliance that's forming that really and truly is about robbing national sovereignty and these unelected globalists superimposing their standards on a sovereign nation like the United States. It follows perfectly logically from my vantage point that your passion for international law, your work internationally, 
and your sensitivity to communist coercion that you're paying attention to this. Am I right in saying that's where the fire in your bones has come with these last two jobs that you've taken on? Well, absolutely, Janet. I mean, some people have have raised the question like, why are you, I thought you were saving babies and widows in China. Why are you trying to fight globalism? And they're absolutely connected because it's as I was fighting forced abortion in China and and seeing um, the way that women and babies are are just terribly oppressed, violently oppressed by the Chinese Communist Party, that I became very alarmed to see it coming to the United States and to the world through the World Health Organization, the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, and other globalist um, entities. And so, of course, I had to sound the alarm because I saw, I, I see where this leads. And it leads to the kind of system that that they have in China. And that's exactly what WHO is doing again. They're picking up these communist ideas of coercion for thinking and implementation of policy as well. Um, WHO, by the way, their hands are not clean. They sat on what they knew about the COVID pandemic for months. They fomented the idea that this was a bat in a wet market. They did not do what needed to be done instantly But because of the leadership of the WHO, it's almost like they were giving due deference to the Communist Party in China by not identifying that there was, for example, um, at that point, uh, they repeated the lie that you pointed out that there was no human to human transmission. Talk to me about the fact that it's like the fox guarding the chicken house here. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, there was a hearing uh, in December where several Biden officials, uh, administrative officials, testify before the U.S. Congress that the reason that they didn't, you know, hold China accountable is they didn't really have that power. So what they need is more power and they need more money and they need to have what the WHO is asking for in this pandemic agreement and the international health regulation amendments in order to hold China accountable. And my question is, why in the world would this organization that is kowtowing to China in the last pandemic in what world do we think that they're actually going to hold them accountable in the next pandemic? Exactly. They're just going to continue to spread the China model even more widely. Couldn't agree more. And you point out, uh, and this came out in the press conference, that at the time, the World Health Organization was an advisory body. But if this treaty, and I'm going to go back to the importance of that word in a minute, if this treaty were to be put in place, they would have a much vaulted sense of authority. Do they not? And explain to me how that would happen. Well, Okay, so in the International Health Regulation Amendment, they strike out the word non-binding, okay, so, so that, that, that it gives them binding authority. And then in the pandemic treaty itself, the word shall mm. uh, occurs over 170 times. It is, and, and they also recently put out um, a, a press release or an article saying that they consider this to be an absolutely legally binding um, agreement. So, so in, in the past, in the last pandemic, you know, the whole world basically bent to what to what they wanted anyway when it was only advisory. But if it becomes compulsory, they will be able to force us to do what they want. They, they, and what they want is they want to have the ability to force um, ma- vaccine mandates, mask mandates, quarantines, lockdowns. They want to, be, to tell the world, including the United States, how to handle not only an actual pandemic, but anything that could, is a potential pandemic or anything that's a potential health risk. Yes. And the operative word here is health, as we know far too well just in the abortion issue, how that game can be used or that word rather can be used as a cudgel as well. So uh, going back to the World Health Organization, just to help my friends understand, 
Is this an arm of the United Nations? From where was this resurrected? In other words, where did they get this kind of authority, implied or stated? Yes, they are the medical, you know, they're the health arm of the United Nations. And, um, and in the beginning, they just, they were a very simple and humble organization that was funded by the various countries. Um, and they uh, would, um, they just cared about sanitation, polio, stuff like that. But then they started growing, and, and one of the big ways they started growing was by uh, getting private funding. So, for example, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is one of the primary funders, mm. um, that, as is Gavi. And both of these are heavily invested in vaccines. So there's a, there's a huge conflict of interest mm-hmm. where you have people who would benefit financially from the imposition of vaccines worldwide funding the World Health Organization, which, of course, is then going to say everybody needs to be vaccinated in the world. And that's that's the position that they've been taking. Wow. I'm glad I have another segment with you, Reggie. There's so much here. And there's also a call to action. You and I don't have to sit silently by while this health arm of the U.N. is trying to steal national sovereignty and self-impose authority on themselves that they don't have, by the way. They're going to decide what's a pandemic. They're going to tell a country, another sovereign state, exactly what the policy should be about masks and distancings and businesses closed. We had a robust debate about that within the parameters of our own country, let alone a third-party international entity. Reggie Littlejohn is with us, president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers, president of the Anti-Globalist Alliance and co-founder of the Sovereignty Coalition. We're visiting with Reggie Littlejohn, president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers, president of the Anti-Globalist Alliance and co-founder of the Sovereignty Coalition. And we're talking about this very dangerous move by the World Health Organization to basically do a power grab. It's just that simple. And so now we've got some in our own government that are pandering and may be willing to give up national sovereignty. And so much of this hinges on the wisdom of our founding fathers who knew exactly when you decide to be a signatory to a treaty, that there had to be a high level of scrutiny and accountability. And so, Reggie, this is where the tap dancing around the word agreement and treaty is. If we call it a treaty, it triggers an action by the United States Senate. If we call it an agreement, then this can be something done vis-a-vis the administration with no checks and balances, and certainly the voice of the people cannot weigh in. Talk to me about this. That's right, Janet. So, yeah, they, they're, they're, the World Health Organization is calling it an, an accord, an agreement, a framework, a, a conference or whatever. They won't call it a treaty, but it is a, a treaty. I mean, basically, a treaty is very simply a legally binding agreement between nations. And that's exactly what this is. And our founding fathers said that, that the United States could only enter into something like this with the advice and the consent of the Senate, meaning two-thirds consent, not even just a, a, a majority, because these things are so very, very serious. And yet um, the Biden administration has not committed to that, and uh, we don't know whether they're going to submit it to the Senate or whether they're just going to try to sign it by executive agreement. Mm-hmm. So um, so this is something that that people need to contact their representatives about this to say, you know, this is a treaty and you know, and it needs to be done by the, it can only take effect with the advice and the consent of the Senate. Um, but, there, but there's a further problem, Janet, which is that the international health regulation amendments by their own, by the, in the, in the, in the international health regulations, article 55 requires them to submit 
uh, amendments four months in advance. And that uh, that deadline passed on on January 27th. And they are continuing to negotiate these amendments and the treaty, probably up to the actual time that they're going to be voting on them, which is May of this year, just a few months from now. And it is my contention, it is my position that that vote must be delayed because they have broken their rule um, and they need to submit these things four months in advance. And you can't consider, you can't have something sprung on you of this great of a magnitude and vote on it within days of, of seeing it for the first time. There's no chance for anybody to analyze it or consider what the, implica- what the implications might be. I think that's such an astute observation on your part. So they violated process here, and process is important in the law. And so if you don't follow the rules, then you have a power grab. You can have a takeover. And by the way, there's no place for the people's voice to be heard in this process at all. So let me go back to the clearing call to people who are listening all across the country. Does it matter? I mean, I'm going to give the phone number for the Capitol Hill switchboard. Should we make calls, even though the Senate is given the authority to ratify or not ratify a treaty? Does it help to call both your member of the House and the Senate, or should we just relegate calls to the Senate? Well, I think the Senate is, is the most important, but the House is good, too. I mean, the, the, you know, both of them can put pressure on the administration. Um, but what I would say is not only should people say that this should be ratified, only, only ratified by the Senate, it has to be ratified by the Senate, but I also think that they should say it needs to be delayed, you know, that, 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 that the vote should be delayed. And also what I would urge people to do is to go on to the Anti-Globalist um, Alliance website, which is antiglobalist.net. That's antiglobalist.net, and sign the manifesto. Because um, when you do that, what that does is it puts you on my email list, and I'll be able to give you updates and, and calls to action as we progress towards this May vote. Excellent. We'll put that on our website as well, Reggie. So I thank you for that. And you've just gotten your marching orders, friends. And if you want to call 202-224-3121, If you don't know who your senators are or your rep, don't be embarrassed. The overwhelming majority of Americans don't know. Just tell them where you're from, and the switchboard can put you in touch with the right offices. So 202-221-3121, Talk to me about digital IDs, because we know there's lots of conversations about tracking somebody's carbon footprint, but the digital IDs would be something that they've talked about before and then actually pulled back on the language because I think they were afraid, honestly, Reggie, of people like you who were exposing how nefarious this was. But why are digital IDs problematic? Well, digital IDs are, are hugely problematic and they are in, they are the enforcement mechanism for surveillance and the pandemic treaty and the international health regulation amendments Say that, uh, obligate nations to surveil their their um, citizens ostensibly. You know the, the pretext is to see if anybody is sick, to see if anybody's been vaccinated. Okay, um, but the, but if you go on the World Economic Forum website, there's a chart there of everything that they intend the digital ID to be required for you and me to do. So in other words, we will need a digital ID in order to access healthcare in order to travel, in order to buy anything online um, or, or even anything at all, in, in order to vote, in order to pay our taxes, in order to, be, to you know, be on social media. Basically, every aspect of human life is going to require a digital ID. And these are very dangerous because they can be used very similar to a China social credit system. 
where wow. people are surveilled in every aspect of their lives and the, the government decides, you know, whether you're a good citizen or, or, or not a good citizen. And if you're not a good citizen, by their, by, you know, in their opinion, let's say you're refusing to get the latest booster, they can just turn off your digital ID and you will be completely separated from society. Exactly. And, and this is why we come full circle back to communist China again. This is, this is hugely problematic. So 202-224-3121. 202-224-3121. Get on Reggie's newsletter so that you can get updates on this and then use the voice that God has given you to seek the welfare of the city. National sovereignty at its root is very much of a biblical issue. God establishes boundaries, if you'll remember, and I don't think we should be acquiescing. Reggie, thank you. We live in complicated times, and in the market, we're helping you interpret complex cultural issues through the lens of Scripture. Our team of partial partners is growing, and to say thank you, they receive exclusive information from me. In fact, I talk to you directly from my personal computer to yours by email. Become a partial partner today, and you'll receive these exclusive benefits. Call 877-JANET-58 or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Take out your prayer list because you're going to need it and it's going to be added to. Todd Nettleton is joining us, Director of Media Development for The Voice of the Martyrs, working with the media to tell the stories of persecuted Christians to people all over the United States. We are so grateful when he comes and visits because he really does hear from sources that have boots on the ground. He's traveled so much of the globe himself. In fact, I put on my information page the resource, When Faith is Forbidden. It's like traveling along with Todd as he visits our persecuted brothers and sisters. The subtitle, 40 Days on the Front Lines with Persecuted Christians. It's an absolutely gripping read. So, Todd, thank you so much for joining us. And I want to start first because it's right around the corner. Coming on March 8th, you are hosting a virtual event. Please tell our friends all about this. Yeah, this is going to be a great evening together, Friday night, March the 8th. It is free, so you can access it. You can access it at home with your family. We would encourage you, go to your church, have your church host this event, get the whole congregation together, and be inspired by the stories of Christians who have been face-to-face with radical Islam. So we have Heather Mercer, who was captured and imprisoned by the Taliban in Afghanistan, We have Hassan Abdurrahim, who was arrested and imprisoned alongside my VOM co-worker Peter Yasek in Sudan. Mm. John Samara leads a team of church planters and pastors in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, Literally, some of his co-workers have been kidnapped. They've been imprisoned. They have been beaten. They have faced all kinds of pressure and torture. And then the worship for the evening will be led by Stephen Curtis Chapman. So it is going to be a fantastic evening. Again, Friday, March the 8th, all of the information to register is on our website, persecution.com, or you can go directly to the event website. It's I-M-N, just the letter N, event.com. Wow. I'm going to say that again so people understand this. Uh, for persecution.com, that's the main portal always for Voice of the Martyrs, but specifically for this event, the letter, does it have to be caps, by the way? Is it uh, No, important? it doesn't matter. Okay, good. I-A-M-N, as in night, and then the word event.com. Let me say it again, the letter I-A-M-N, as in night, event.com. Again, free You can do it as a family. You can do it as a small group. You could do it as a church, but it's March 8th, right around the corner. And you're going to hear some powerful testimonies because I had a chance to talk to Peter. I had a chance to talk to Heather, uh, just to be able to know that these people 
persevered. In fact, I retweeted today something that you sent out, Todd, about some of the people that were lined up along the shore and were murdered by ISIS today. They were told to deny Christ and they could live or stay faithful to Christ and they would die. And every one of them took a bullet in the back of the head. And I think we need to remember their sacrifice and what they did. And may we be as brave and courageous as they are. So now we go to Cuba. I don't think you and I have talked about Cuba in forever. And yet you spent time with a pastor from Cuba recently. I'd love to hear his report. Yeah, what a, what a great conversation with him. Uh, you know, as, as I had the conversation, I was reminded of a conversation I had several years ago with a pastor in China. And the pastor in China said to me, he said, everything is illegal, but everything is possible. And as I talk to our brother from Cuba, that's kind of how it is in Cuba right now. Everything is illegal. They won't let you build a church building. If your church building is broken, they won't let you repair it. If you're a pastor and you want to buy a house where you could have church at home, they won't let you buy a house. Nothing is, is legal, but everything is possible. And he said that Cuban Christians are just saying, okay, fine, we can't have a church building. We'll go out in the streets. We'll go out in the fields. He had pictures of a gathering of more than 10,000 Cuban believers mm. gathered for a day, literally in a field. <laughs> he said when they introduced, you know, they welcomed everybody to the meeting. They said, if you need to go to the bathroom, the bathrooms are over there. And he pointed to a grove of trees in the distance <laughs> because they were literally out in a field. The, the government wasn't going to give them a place to hold this gathering. So they said, fine, we're just going to go out in nature. We're going to gather there. More than 10,000 believers, VOM was privileged to provide Bibles for those people, so they took home a copy of God's Word. But every single pastor that was there, every single pastor that was involved in promoting that event, after it was over, they were interrogated. They were pressured. Oh. They were threatened. They were told, no, you can't do this. But the pastors there are saying, yes, we, we understand that you're going to pressure us. We understand you're going to interrogate us. We're going to do what God has called us to do. We're going to continue on in the ministry. So, you know, everything is illegal, but everything is possible. And, and they understand that price, and they are willingly paying that. One of the stories that he shared, and this is, I have heard this before, and it, it challenges me every single time. One of the ways that the government gets at the pastors is through their children. So mm -hmm. if you are the son or daughter of a pastor in Cuba, you could go K through 12, you could do every single assignment. In fact, you could get an A on every single assignment. And when graduation day comes, they might not give you a diploma because they say, oh, oh, your father is a pastor. Your father is opposed to the revolution. We're not going to reward you. We're not going to give you the diploma that you have earned over the last 13 years. And I, you know, I think about those kids who are, they're also paying a price because of their parents' ministry, because of their being in, in the home of a pastor. And so as we pray and I celebrate what God is doing and I celebrate the courage of our Cuban brothers and sisters, I also want us to pray for those pastor's kids. I, I was a pastor's kid, so this is kind of, this hits close to home for me, um, but they are paying a price as well. And let's pray for those families and pray for those young people who's who were born into the pastor's home. Yes, absolutely. I so appreciate these visits with these very specific prayer requests. Talk to me about the 10,000 plus that were in attendance. If they go after the pastors, if they use the children as the cudgel, what happens to the 10,000 plus who were in attendance? You know, 
I think because there were so many, it was hard for them to hold every single person accountable. And so mm. they really did go after the leaders and say, hey, this is your fault. If you wouldn't have put on this meeting, then all these people wouldn't have been led astray. So I think their focus was on the leadership. Uh, but you know, those people are taking a risk too. And they know when they gather, whether it's 10,000 or whether it's 20 in a, in a private worship service, they know that's an illegal act. That is a criminal act for them to do that. Uh, and so they're taking a risk as well. But it seems like the focus of the police, the focus of the authorities is really on the church leaders and on the pastors. Yeah, absolutely. And it underscores something I said last week, Todd, which is if you look in the countries where there is persecution, very often the government will look the other way if it's one person, if it's one Christian. The Christian then is not a threat to the government. But when Christians gather, that's a whole nother story. And I think it really underscores why the not forsaking the assembling of yourselves is so important for a myriad of reasons, not the least of which is when we gather together, there's a declaration, there's a collective declaration there that we are his and we're not retreating. And then that becomes a problem for the government. It doesn't make it easy for the saint. The saint may end up paying a price for that, but it's really important that we show that we are together, that there is a unity among the believers. And uh, I think that's important, particularly when you look at a country like Turkey. We, uh, and there Cuba. is such there there is a confusion by these government. They they per persist in seeing Christianity as a political organism. Like yes. oh, they've got these ten thousand people together. They're probably trying to start a revolution. Right. No, they're they're trying to reach people with the gospel. It, it's a different thing. But you can't convince a communist government. You can't convince an Islamic government of that. They always see it as a as a political gathering, uh -huh. as a political crime. If I may throw in my two cents, and sometimes it happens in a democracy like these United States where they can't separate <laughs> Christianity from politics as well. I get it. Wow. So talk about Turkey. In fact, I made a mistake before. I was talking about Cuba, and then I accidentally dropped in Turkey. But I'm fascinated by Turkey. I'm fascinated by Turkey because of its leadership, Erdogan, uh, where he's going, uh, his role that he'll play as there's fomenting in the Middle East. So this is a country not to take your eyes off of. Tell me what's happening there. Turkey's one of my favorite countries in the world. Mm -hmm. I have visited there several times. I love it. I think every Christian should go to Turkey and mm -hmm. uh, see the streets that Paul walked on. Yes, indeed. Two Sundays ago, there was an attack, though, on a Catholic church in Istanbul. So the, the biggest city, the primary city in the country, two men with masks and guns walk in in the middle of Sunday morning worship. They open fire. One man was killed. Now, there's, there's a little two different interpretations of what happened. The, the man who was killed was actually from a Muslim background. So there is some thought, was he being targeted as an apostate? Hey, you were born in a Muslim household and now you're here in a Christian church. What are you doing here? Or was it a mass attack and, and he just happened to be the first person shot and then their guns jammed and the gunmen left? Now, hmm. the gunmen have since been arrested. The, the government has arrested numerous people involved in this. But like I say, it's it's unclear exactly what was going on that morning. What is clear is, you know, ISIS has put out a call for the killing of Christians and Jews. This was an answer to that call. In fact, the group that took responsibility is ISIS Turkey province, which is a we haven't heard of attacks from them before. So if this is the rise of an, a true ISIS branch in Turkey, that obviously is something worth paying attention to for everyone, but especially for Christians there. 
they are watching this and saying, okay, wait a minute. What what do I need to think about when I go to church on Sunday? If I'm a pastor, what do I need to think about as far as security for my congregation? Those are big questions when you've just seen an attack like this in the biggest city in the country. Yes, and it's a huge city, by the way. You make the point that the Catholic Church was a very public building, but most evangelical churches are less public. But they're watching nonetheless. Yeah, they are. So this is, a, like you say, very public. It's got a cross on top. You would walk by and say, yes, that's a church. Most Protestant churches are in a storefront. They're in a less identifiable building. But certainly the government knows and certainly the radical Islamists know where the churches are. Wow. Well, we're far from over when it comes to lengthening your prayer list. Todd's going to be with us when we come back after the break as we continue his report on the persecuted church. By the way, persecution.com, their free monthly newsletter is in a word spectacular. It really visually shows you the price that our brothers and sisters are paying and how we can be praying back after this. Todd Nettleton is with us, Director of Media Development for The Voice of the Martyrs. And we're adding to your prayer list, and that's what happens every time Todd comes. Let me just underscore again, two things real quick. Persecution.com, please sign up for their free monthly newsletter. It's so impactful. It is the reality, the visual reality of what we talk about on these conversations with Todd on a regular basis. The second is the virtual event that's going to come up on March 8th, free, available for you to watch as a family, as a church, as a small group. And it really and truly focuses in on the challenge of radical Islam, but how God is faithful and helps his followers overcome the challenges they face in an Islamic-dominated community. So the event is called IMN Virtual Event. I'm going to spell it again, www.event.com. I-A-M, the letter N, event.com, or persecution.com. But that link I gave you was a direct one to the event as well. So picking up where we left off, talk to me about the trauma care that VOM is providing to persecuted Christians in West Africa. I think this is a fabulous, fabulous aspect of VOM. I am really excited about this. And we had the leader of this, Brother Philip, on VOM Radio. So you can find the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, just search for VOM Radio. He talked about helping provide trauma care for persecuted Christians. So you think about Islamists have, he talked about one lady where Islamists came into the village, they killed all the men and they raped all the women. Mm. And so here you have a woman who's lost her husband and she's been sexually assaulted. How does she move on from that? How does she deal with that trauma? And so not only is he providing trauma care, but what we're doing is training pastors and training church leaders Here's some tools for your toolbox. When you have someone in your congregation like that woman, how do you minister to them? How do you help them? How do you encourage them? That's what he's doing. That's what we talk about. One of the things he said, and I thought this was so key, is is one of the really crucial aspects of this is forgiveness. Hmm. If you're going to put this behind you and if you're going to work past it, there has to be some forgiveness. Otherwise, you're carrying this trauma around with you all the time in the form of unforgiveness. And so he said that is one of the really key things is helping someone access the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to forgive. Because, you know, humanly, that is so hard. We can't do it. We need God's help. And so 
not only, like I say, he's doing this, but he's also training pastors in West Africa. And I, I'm like you, I'm so thrilled that VOM is, yes, we're providing blankets and Bibles and places to stay and food, but also being able to help people heal, find healing from the wounds on their hearts. Uh, I think it's such a great ministry that that Voice of the Martyrs is involved in. I couldn't agree more because repairing a broken heart is as important as getting a roof over their head as well and giving them a warm meal. And you and you were going to take a breath. So you say well, whatever you're going to say. One of the things he said, and I think I will always remember it. He said, when you go through trauma, if you don't deal with it, if you don't process it, it's always like it happened yesterday. Mm-hmm. It never gets to be six months ago and a year ago and 10 years ago. It's always like it happened yesterday. Uh, and I just, I think about our brothers and sisters who have gone through persecution. I don't want it to always be like it happened yesterday. I want them to get to the point where it was six months ago, it was 10 years ago, and now they're into a new area of ministry and they're seeing God work again in their lives. I want them to get past that it happened yesterday feeling. Yeah. Amen to that. And by the way, and here's another website. When Todd comes, there's lots of websites always. If you go to vomradio.net, vomradio.net, Voice of the Martyrs has an absolutely fabulous radio broadcast, and you can hear conversations with Philip on that website. So vomradio.net, vomradio.net. Why do I think also that there are conversations within the parameters of VOM's ministry where there's more conversation about how do we deal with broken hearts after trauma, because trauma is so frequently associated with the persecution that our brothers and sisters have to contend with. It, it is a huge thing. And one of the things I'm excited about, Philip, he has so much expertise, and now that's starting to spread into other parts of VOM and other areas of the world. And so I'm just really excited to see what God has in store for the next five or 10 years Mm -hmm. as we kind of take this expertise and say, okay, how do we train more pastors? How do we train pastors in more countries? Because persecution and trauma really do go hand in hand, unfortunately. Wow. So in deference to time, let me ask you about the Maldives. I don't know that we've ever talked about the Maldives. So tell me what's happening there. Uh, you know, I've seen pictures of Maldives, and I have tried and tried to get my bosses to send me there personally, <laughs> but so far they have not uh, acquiesced to that. Maldives is a country with only about 25 known Maldivian Christians. So this wow. is a tiny, tiny Christian population in a very small island country off the coast of India. But persecution comes with following Christ. So so it happens two ways. One is your family. They're going to be upset if you say, hey, I'm not a Muslim anymore. I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus now. Well, hey, you're not part of our family. You don't have a place here. We don't want you here. But here's the other thing. The Maldivian Constitution says only Muslims can be citizens. So if you say, I'm not a Muslim anymore— the government turns around and says, well, you're not a citizen anymore. You don't belong here anymore. You don't have any rights. You don't have any protection here because you're no longer a citizen. And, you know, as I thought about that, I thought, wow, you know, we truly are citizens of heaven and we know that. But for Maldivians, that's their only citizenship, that they no longer have an earthly citizenship if they choose to follow Jesus. That creates a great deal of fear, though, among Maldivian people, even to share the gospel. They're like, whoa, 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 I don't want to hear it because that would cause all kinds of problems for me. But I hope people will pray. The other thing we talked about is there has been efforts for 30 years to translate the Bible into the Maldivian language. And 
so many people involved in that translation process have suddenly become sick or died, or it, it clearly is a spiritual battle against translating the Bible into that language. And so I just hope our listeners, we've talked about their prayer list and we always try to add things to it. Let's pray for the scriptures to be available to the Maldivian people in their heart language soon. Yeah. Amen to that. Thank you so much. Uh, watching India. This is year of elections. We have interesting, tense relationships between the United States and India. Our government wants them to sign on to a climate conference, so we kind of tiptoe around. You can hear the music playing. I got 30 seconds, but tell me something we can do to pray for India. Well, the national elections coming up in April and May. Prime Minister Modi is running for a third term. Persecution got worse in his first two, so if he gets another term, persecution is going to get even worse than it is now. Huge. I think we've lengthened their prayer list, Todd. Blessings to you. You know, I love and support the ministry of Voice of the Martyrs. I think it's so crucial, so important for a whole bunch of reasons, not the least of which is that we pray for them and we learn to be as courageous as they are as well. Todd, thank you. Thank you, friends. So, so enjoyable spending the hour with you. We'll see you next time on In the Market with Janet Parshall.